Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Dr. Casey Patrick here, and this is going to be one of our components of our summer bundle. And we've paired up snake bites, heat injuries, and drowning. And in this section, we're going to cover drowning. And joining me today to talk about drowning is Ashton Herring. Ashton is our first responder and outreach coordinator here in the clinical office at MCHD, and she does a lot of our first responder drowning education. Ashton, why is why is this discussion important? Uh, so you know we uh, we're getting into our summer months. So of course we have Lake Conroe here in our hometown, um, but we also have pools in almost every backyard here in Texas. So uh, drowning is the leading cause of death, or the, or the second leading cause of death, rather, uh, for children ages one to fourteen. And um, and then not only that, but every one child who dies from drowning about five more are seen for a drowning injury in an emergency department. So this is affecting our kids. And just talking about all age groups, uh, about 10 people die every day in the United States from a drowning incident. So super common. Something we're going to see, especially here in the the warm months. Very true. Who drowned? What what are some of the risk factors? So, uh, of course, you know, uh, along with the pool and the boats comes uh, usually alcohol for the adults. And so um, there's a higher likelihood of drowning uh, when substances are involved, alcohol or maybe recreational drugs. Males, of course, are at higher risk risk. Uh, just we know that they participate in risky behaviors more often than females. And children, of course, like we said, um, either curious or maybe they're not educated in how to swim or staying away from the water when there's not an adult, or maybe they're even unsupervised. So our kids are at higher risk. And of course, if you have medical complications like epilepsy or other things that might cause you to have um, syncope while you're in the water could be at a higher risk for a submersion event. So common, high risk, and there's also some differences, correct, when we approach, approach drowning. Sure. So, you know, I think people have that thought of drowning is silent, first of all. So uh, so I think people have the misconception from the media that drowning is this big production. Um, and, and the media has led us to believe that drowning is so obvious, you know, flailing arms and, and everything else. But really drowning is silent. So these children and these adults are, are possibly in distress and, and nobody knows what's going on. Um, and of course, you know, we want to make sure that we are educating our, our responders um, on how to address it once the accident does happen. Because yeah, once, once we pull these folks out standard abc sort of old school now approach still holds true we've progressed with our cpr management we're going to talk about this a little more as the podcast rolls on you know we've really pushed hard for compressions only especially in bystanders and and drowning is one of those outliers where we still want to approach it from an abc standpoint as opposed as opposed to a cab and i think a good way to to sort of remember why we do that physiologically is that when we drown we die not from water in the lungs, but it's from cerebral anoxia. When we look at drowning patients on autopsy and we look at how much water are in patients' lungs, we're talking about 100 to 150 cc, so a one or two uh, milliliters per kilogram at autopsy. So these people don't typically have flooded lungs. What happens? How does how does the order happen in a drowning patient? Well, first off, if you're under, you can't swim, you're going to hold your breath as long as you can. And oftentimes that will be in the neighborhood of a minute. When you can't hold out any longer, you take that first breath, take that first inhalation of water, and then you cough. Sometimes you have laryngospasm, sometimes you don't. In the end, you aspirate, and the aspiration, the end product of that is going to be hypoxia. And that hypoxia is eventually going to lead to cardiac arrest. 
So again, these patients don't have lungs full of water, but they have water that enters the lungs that causes, again, cerebral hypoxia and anoxia. So if we die from anoxia, then that should be the focus of what we treat. And again, that goes back to the, you know, arrest patient from drowning. We really want to go back to the ABC because the airway and the breathing are going to be, that's the reason why we die. That's where we should focus our treatment. So let's start out. We're going to talk about a couple cases. Uh, first off, let's have a three-year-old pull from a swimming pool. It's a December party here in Texas. Our pool's heated. Uh, you're just hanging out there with your kids. You're not on duty. And everybody's running and playing tag and, and eating cake and ice cream. And you hear a father come run through the sliding glass doors, screaming, holding the, holding the three-year-old in his arms. Unknown downtime, no pulse. So how are you going to approach that? And if you think about current recommendations, you know, CPR only for bystanders, um, we've kind of gotten away from emphasizing uh, rescue breaths, but you're standing in a house. You don't have your mask. Uh, you don't have a BVM. You don't have a non-rebreather, but something is better than nothing, right? The atmosphere is 21% oxygen. So rescue breaths in this case are vital. And if you have a mask or a BVM, obviously, if the, if the first responders roll up, that's going to be really important. Um, but we want to go back to the old 30 and 2 and make sure that we're giving those two rescue breaths. And in patients who ha who have been submerged and who, you know, have drowned, we want to start with five breaths and not not two because oftentimes it takes that extra pressure to to kind of pop the airways open. So that's that's really the extreme case. Let's go let's go to the other end of the spectrum and talk about 22-year-old pulled from Lake Conroe. That's our our uh, resident lake here in Montgomery County. We got a 22-year-old male, so there's the high-risk dude riding his riding his jet skis drinking a little too much cold beer and his friends pull him out. He's a poor swimmer. Uh, as soon as they pull him out, the lifeguard calls EMS. When, when we arrive on scene, the patient coughed initially and you get him on the truck, get him on the monitor, get your stethoscope out, take a listen. He's 100% on regular room air with no oxygen supplementation. He's clear on your exam. You know, what's our disposition? So now would be a good time to backtrack for just a second and review some drowning terminology. I think sometimes the lay press, uh, the media can be very inconsistent here. And I think it's good for us in the emergency care setting to all speak the same language. We hit on this in just about every podcast uh, that I'm involved in. I think it's really important that when we change these patients over to the emergency department, when we speak with families, that consistent, consistent terminology and consistent language is very important. When we talk about drowning, one of the first terms I think we really need to be on the same page on, or the first group of terms, is submersion and immersion. Submersion implies below the surface, Immersion is more water flushed in the face. That'd be like on a jet ski or, if you know, you fall out of a boat and into fast-moving water. Uh, water rescue is when someone's pulled for the water, no water in the airway. And then the two most important, and this is going to be very simple, we're not going to make this complicated, is our types of drowning. And there's two. There's non-fatal and fatal. Non-fatal drowning is water in the airway, patient's still alive. Fatal drowning is water in the airway and patient's deceased. Again, water rescue is patient pulled from the water with no water in the airway. So if we go back to case two and talk about the, or the young kid that was pulled from Lake Conroe by the lifeguard, poor swimmer, coughed initially, crews arrived on scene and found him satting 100 with clear lungs, that patient is a non-fatal drowning from a submersion injury. The patient in case one is fatal drowning. So not complicated, very straightforward. How do we how do we grade drowning? Check out your show notes. There's a link to a New England Journal of Medicine summary of the drowning literature. And I think it's pretty useful and covers a lot of broad topics. But there's actually a grading system 
for drowning. If you're like me, as soon as you hear a grading system, you fall asleep very quickly, snoring, bored out of your mind. But it's actually pretty easy, and I think it's fairly useful for us in the pre-hospital setting, and I'll, I'll tell you why after I go through the grades. So there's one through six. One is very easy to remember. One is a patient that is rescued, coughs, and has clear lungs, normal SATs. And that is our patient in case two. So it's grade one non-fatal drowning. The easiest way for you to remember the grades from here on out are, are you responsive or unresponsive? And if you're responsive and you have some abnormal lung exam, then you're grade two. If you're responsive and you have an abnormal lung exam throughout, so all fields, you're grade three. If you're responsive and have abnormal lung exam throughout and hypotension, you're grade four. And then five and six are going to be unresponsive patients. If you're pulseless, it's a six. Obviously, that's going to be worse. We're going uh, up in severity. And if you're unresponsive and have a pulse, then you're grade five. So why does this matter to us in a pre-hospital setting? If someone is pulled from the water, they cough, so they've had some drowning event, and their exam is normal, their SATs are normal, they're awake and alert, so they're clearly a grade one, their survival rate is 100%. So those patients probably going to take those folks to the hospital most of the time. I'm not not trying to uh, discourage transporting these patients, but I think what we can know as pre-hospital providers is those folks we pull out and they're coughing a little bit and clear and normal, their survival is 100%. I think that's, and that's a not an insignificant pr- proportion of the people that we see. So I think that's a useful, useful tidbit to know. I mean, as we increase in grading, our survival rate is going to decrease. So the survival rate of a patient who is unresponsive and pulseless is in the 7 to 12% range. So that's going to increase as we go up. So just to review those real quickly one more time, grade one, two, three, and four are all awake. Five and six are unconscious. If you're pulseless, you're a six. If you have a pulse and you're unconscious, you're a five. One is easy because that's awake and clear. And then two, three, and four, two is abnormal lung exam partial. So you got rowels at the base and clear in the upper lobes. That's going to be a grade two. And then three and four, if you're rowels throughout and normal blood pressure, you're a three. If you're rowels throughout and hypotensive, you're a four. So again, let's not get too caught up in the weeds there, but I think that's a a useful tool for us to classify our grades of drowning. Always be conservative. Again, I think all these folks are going to get taken to the hospital, but know that if they're clear and if their SATs are normal, They've got a 100% survival rate. Let's um, get out of the grades a little bit and play a little bit of Mythbusters. If you're uh, like me, you've watched Mythbusters on on TV before. I'm not going to blow anything up or or shoot anybody with rockets. But there's some myths in drowning that I wanted to address that I think are important. First off, salt water and fresh water. There's really no difference in survival, no difference in outcomes, whether you drown in salt water or fresh water. Now, obviously, if you're in a murky, uh, disgusting cesspool, then your rates of aspiration and pneumonia after the fact are going to be increased. But as far as initial survival from the drowning event, no change or no difference in saltwater and freshwater. Should we Heimlich expel the water in these folks? Again, I think that's something that's often tried by bystanders. Not recommended. And again, it goes back to what we talked about initially, and that is that patients die from anoxia and not from water-filled lungs. C-spine immobilization, we always think about trauma in drowning patients. And really, unless we've got a high concern for trauma, uh, it's not, it doesn't need to be our first line thought because when you think about trying to, you know, maximize rescue breathing, uh, maximize, you know, airway management, the collar is just going to be in the way. So yeah, if somebody, you know, dove off the side of the pool and, and we think there's a chance for a C-spine trauma, obviously we want to head straight towards a C-collar. But if you're out at the beach at the lake and somebody's out by the buoy and goes under, we don't have to rush to the sea collar right away. 
Do all drowning patients need to be admitted? Again, that's a question that we often get asked in the emergency department setting. And, and I think looking at the, the drowning classification and, and seeing that there's survival rates for grade one, 100%, grade two, 99%. So even patients that have initial abnormal lung exam, their survival rate is nearly 100%. So not all these patients have to be admitted. And that, again, is some classical dogma teaching that we can bust that myth a little bit. Now, again, if we're concerned, obviously bring them in. But if they're clear and their SATs are normal and you've observed them, they can go home. And everyone's favorite question, I think uh, Ashton loves to hear this from parents, and I hear it all the time, that is dry drowning. Really, it's an incorrect term. Go back to the definitions. If you inhale water, you drown. If you are alive, it's a non-fatal drowning. If you're pulseless, it's a fatal drowning. And no more needs to be said than that. So how do we approach these from a pre-hospital setting? How do we teach, teach our medics at MCHD to manage these folks? I think the first thing and really what has to be the foundation of caring for these patients is to remember that two drownings are always worse than one. We have to keep ourselves safe. And that's hard because you want to help. But if it's an unsafe situation and you're not trained for a water rescue, we don't want you going in the water. Expect vomiting. These patients are going to vomit. 90% of patients that get CPR after drowning vomit. So remember, you know, sometimes I think the NG tube or the OG tube can be an afterthought after we intubate patients or after we control airways. I think these are very important patients to get that NG tube down and decompress them. Expect bloody pulmonary edema. I think sometimes we only consider this in CHF patients, but this is this is very, very common in drowning patients. So expect that and expect to need to suction their airway as well as decompress their stomach. And when we think about some of our previous podcasts and some of our recent educational focus here at MCHD, one of the things that we've really been talking about here over the past year, and we've already talked about on the podcast, is lung protective ventilatory strategies. And if there's any patient that needs lung protective ventilation, it's definitely the, the drowning patient because they've got all the risk factors, right? They've got aspiration. They've got alveolar membrane damage. You know, they're, they're going to be ripe for ARDS. So make sure that we're using our, our lung protective vent strategies. Again, that's going to be ideal body weight based tidal volume. Use some PEEP. Keep, keep their airways propped open. Uh, think about minimizing oxygen if possible. Again, if you need 100%, leave it there. But we don't want, we don't want hyperoxia in these folks either. This is one of the, one of the times where hypothermia is going to be your friend. Um, for every degree drop in temperature, your brain survival time goes up 5%. So actually, if you, and not a whole lot of cold water here in Texas, but if you pull, pull patients out of the water in a cold environment, that can actually be, be neuroprotective. And then again, stay alert to predisposing causes. And Ashton mentioned some of those earlier toxins, overdose, uh, seizure, and epileptic patients. And again, when we talked about C-spine precautions before, I think that we want to be aware of those, but we don't want to overdo it, right? If this was entirely witness and the patient was by the buoy, there's no C-spine trauma, right? But if you think they may have gone off the tree swing or it's a three-foot pool or they may have hit a stump while they were water skiing, these are all times when our C-spine immobilization are going to be needed. So I've hit a lot of stuff here on what happens after patients drown. Ashton's got some excellent information on drowning prevention. I think we'd be remiss to talk about drowning and not, you know, hit on all the treatment. But how do we prevent these folks from drowning, Ashton? Well, I hate to say, tell you this, but the best treatment for drowning is to prevent the drowning from happening at all. And I, t I took the uh, I took the 
I took the first. I said I'm going to treat afterwards. So I did it uh, incorrectly. I should have let should have let Ashton go first. She could have saved me all the trouble. <laughs> but um, you know, we we know that um, you know, sometimes bad things happen despite all of our our good efforts. But we really want to encourage families and caregivers, anybody who's around children um, at all, or especially children around water. Uh, designate somebody who's in charge of watching the kids. Um, and that's a person who's not on their phone, a person who's not drinking, um, to have sole supervision of these children, or even maybe adults that are drinking or adults that have medical conditions, somebody who can be responsible and react quickly if something does happen. So there's a person out there that's not looking at their phone and not had a beer? That person exists? Yeah, around a pool. I know I, I, we'd have to reward those people more. Um, you know, you don't have your phone and you don't have, you, you aren't consuming alcohol. And, um, and I think there's a lot to be said because you're in charge of the kiddos. But, you know, fencing your pools, having gates with locking mechanisms, those are all really important things that can help prevent accidents at home. Even alarm systems on doors, you know, kids are sneaky and they're quick. And so making sure that if the door opens, you know that somebody's gone outside. If somebody, if a child is missing, you know, we tell you check the check the vehicles, you know, check the pool, check the vehicles, make sure they're not in the water, make sure they're not locked in a vehicle. And then ultimately, like you said before, we know that bad things are going to happen despite our best efforts and learning CPR, I think is the best thing you can do to, to be responsive. Right. And like you said, we don't teach those compressions, only CPR for children or infants. And in, in most cases that cause them to go into cardiac arrest, we do recommend giving ventilations as well as compressions, but that goes for all drowning patients as well. They're going to benefit more from getting the breaths as well as compressions instead of that hands only CPR. Yes. Probably should have been clear there when I mentioned that before, really, I was you're right, Ashton, we're going to do uh, rescue breaths and compressions in kids because their arrests are primarily respiratory. So if you're out there and you've caught me on that one, you are correct. I was referring more toward more towards the adults in that situation in that we're not going to do compression only in adults in the drowning situation. I think you hit on some, some good points there. I just built a house actually here in Conroe. Been about a year now, but per code in, in the Conroe city limits, you are required to have your pool fence. You're required to have a self-latching gate and you're required to have an alarm on your doors that enter to the pool. So I've got a little beep that goes off every time someone goes out the pool sliding glass door, uh, my gate latches, and my fence went all the way around. So all that cost me some money, but I've got mine at home are 10, 12, and 14. So they're all pretty good in the water, but you don't know about neighborhood kids. You know, you don't know who's, who's wandering around. And when you have folks over and guests over, parties, things like that, where people are distracted, both by activities and imbibing in a little a little drink on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, it's easy to it's easy to lose track. And I, I remember when my daughter was two or three, I was always judgmental of parents that lost track of their children. And my daughter came out of my bathroom with my razor play shaving <laughs> when she was about two and a half. And I remember thinking like, I was just right there. Right. I was right there. And she's ready to shave her face with my razor. And I've had more than one of those similar situations. So it's really easy to lose track. So I think some of this common sense, like you're talking about, just assign someone, there's no reason, no, no harm in being, being extra cautious in these situations. I think also teaching your, and you might've done this too, teaching your kids how to swim, or even as an adult, like an understanding of water safety and a general comfort in the water. And there's really affordable options out there, I think. And we're in Texas, everybody has a pool. We have the third deadliest lake in the state of Texas right here in our own backyard. And so learning how to swim and being comfortable around water and knowing those basic water safety topics and having that healthy respect for the water, I think is really, really important. I would 100% agree. I think that brings us to a perfect spot to wrap up. Let's kind of hit the high points and sort of the take-home points for our listeners out there. First off, drowning is from anoxia. It's not from lungs full of water. It's from brain without oxygen. So 
If that's the case, and we know that, we gotta treat that anoxia. And again, 21% is better than zero. Rescue breasts are, are vitally important in these patients. Remember to start with five, a little old school CPR. Sometimes it takes a little more pressure to, to, to open those airways back up once they've, once they've been exposed to water. Remember for terminology, there's two that you need to remember. It's very simple. Even I can't mess this one up. If you're dead, it's fatal drowning. If you're not, it's non-fatal drowning, and that's anyone who has water inhalation. So if you go under and you cough, that's drowning, non-fatal. If you go under and you're pulled out, that's going to be water, water rescue. Those patients, we don't need to worry about. They did not drown. And again, not all drowning patients require admission. Not all of them even really require transport. We're going to transport most of these. But if you, for instance, get a patient out there that goes under and coughs and has normal vitals, clear lungs, and wants to refuse transport, you don't have to get as worried as you probably once thought. And just to wrap up, I think the prevention, the, the, you know, the pre-drowning prevention, the post-drowning care I think for us in the pre-hospital setting, really the most important thing is going to be to stay safe, you know, stay safe at all costs. So if you can learn CPR, if you can respect the water, if you can assign folks to watch your kids, these are all going to be important points to prevent drowning. And then if you come on a drowning scene, river, dark, unknown depth, two drownings are always worse than one. Don't ever put yourself at risk. Uh, we don't want to pull two folks out. Uh, and on that note, it'll wrap us up for today in our drowning discussion. Be ready for the other parts of our summer series. Again, we've got snake bites, we've got heat emergencies. We'll have you ready for the lake and a safe summer. Hopefully we don't need to use any of these topics, but I'm afraid the snake bites probably not gonna not gonna stay away. So we'll talk to you guys again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.